Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. Good morning. Thank you. Yeah, and, and real quick, I do want to say uh, for both this service and, and 915, just a, a big thank you to Jay Connect, who is leading uh, worship this morning. If you could give him a round of applause and show him some love when you see him. Uh, such a great guy, such a, a, a full-on worshiping uh, guy. And so I just want to thank him for uh, doing that and the team for helping him out. And uh, as per usual, when I give messages, I do like to uh, point out some of the folks that I study uh, in preparation. And today, those guys were Andy Stanley, Tim Keller, Josh McDowell, and Bruxy Cavey. These are all people that I study in some of their sermons and writings in preparation for today's message. So originally, I had a uh, pretty sweet intro uh, pinned out for you, but it got too wordy, about 500 words, um, so I cut it. Uh, so here's the paraphrased version of what I wanted to share with you uh, this morning in the intro. Uh, number one, uh, the Old Testament is extremely useful and helpful for spiritual growth uh, in the framing of Jesus's ministry. A lot of times people will ask, well, we have the teachings of Jesus and we have the teachings of the apostles and we have the letters. Do we really need the Old Testament um, as uh, you know, believers in Jesus? And and to that I say yes. And there's a, a variety of reasons, but for this particular series of message, I'm just going to give one. And that is because the Old Testament takes a unique look at uh, individuals, at people over a, typically a pretty long span of time and their pursuing of God and their living of life and also God pursuing them. Um, so for those purposes today, that's why... Um, one of the reasons I love uh, studying the Old Testament like we are right now. Um, and with that, number two, I like this series. I'm really enjoying it so far. And I, and I do want to say thank you for what you do to make it possible for me to be here, not just as the worship director, but also working with the other pastors and planning these series. It, it really is life-giving and a learning experience for me. And when we were planning this series, we asked Ross if we could take a few minutes, a few days, minutes would be weird, take a few days, ask some of our friends and small group members and whatnot what they thought we should do in a fall series. And uh, two of my friends in particular, Jenny Wright and Brian, uh, Brian Malakowski, gave me really great feedback for this series, so I did want to thank them for that. And lastly, uh, I was Pharaoh in my high school's production of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Uh, almost 10 years ago, and, and that is the uncomfortable image that we are going to introduce today's topic with. Um, and it is not pudgy, baby-faced, dusty, uh, in a jumpsuit that can only be described as extra breezy. Um, but it is, in fact, uh, the story of Joseph, the son of Jacob. Not Joseph as in Mary and Joseph, if you're new to this whole Bible study thing, um, but uh, that's this is much farther back. So please find a Bible or pull out your phone and uh, look up Genesis chapter 37, if you want to track along with us today. And while you're looking for that, here's a couple icebreaker questions to set the mood. Um, we're going to start extremely hypothetical with these questions and move to a little more practical. How daredevilish, if that's a word, would you be if you knew that you were invincible? What would you do? What chances would you take? Number two, um, how much food or what types of food would you eat if you knew that you could never gain a pound and you would always look like a supermodel? Um, just sidebar, Ross would choose ice cream and hot chocolate at every meal. Uh, I've known him for a few years now. That's what he would do. Uh, three, how would you do your job differently if you knew you weren't dependent on it? Now we're going a little more practical. What would you do if you or someone you loved 
only had six months to live. How would your life change if you were 100% sure that God was always with you in every circumstance? That last one is what we're going to use to focus us in today. And let me tell you how I want you to frame that uh, throughout the rest of our time together. How would someone like you, exactly like you, in your exact life situation act if they were 100% confident that God was with them all the time? How would someone exactly like you respond to every text message and staff meeting, piece of paperwork, moody child, difficult friend, spouse, or family member, if they knew 100% without a doubt that God was with them. I mean, here are the blanket situations that are going to be our tent posts today. Number one, is God with me when times are tough? Number two, is God with me when I've been mistreated and forgotten? And last, number three, is God with me when I am prospering? With that in mind, let's look at that. Genesis chapter 37. We're going to be in and out of this uh, quite a bit, so I'll do my best to let you know when we're jumping around, but we are going to start right in verse 1. It says, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family lines. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Note number one about Joseph's interaction with his brothers. Verse three, now Israel, Israel is another name that God gave to Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So, Joseph is the favorite son out of 11 in total at this point. And throughout the rest of this section, we find out too that Joseph has these dreams. And all of these dreams, at least the ones we're told about, somehow portray this idea that his whole family, all those brothers included, are going to one day bow down to him. And he has zero reservation about sharing that with his brothers. And they didn't like that all too much. Now, is Joseph uh, slightly, maybe, potentially a pinch arrogant or at least uh, socially unaware about how he's coming across most certainly but it isn't necessarily his fault that he's his dad's favorite or that his dad made him fancy clothes and it totally doesn't justify what happens to joseph next now feel free to follow along but i am going to paraphrase a bit so we could keep moving but starting in verse 12 it says jacob sends uh, joseph to go check on his brother's who were working in the fields away off near Shechem. Then he wants Joseph to give him a report on how his brothers are doing. Go out there, check on them, make sure they're working, et cetera, et cetera. You get to come back to me and tell them, tell me if they're doing that or not. And you could kind of feel this distaste growing for their younger brother, right? Anyway, he goes out to the particular field. They're not there. Joseph sees a guy on the road and asks if he's seen his brothers. He said, yes, they've moved on up farther, on up to Dauphin, to another field. So, As Joseph travels out there, his brothers see him coming from a distance and they say, here comes the dreamer, verse 19, let's kill him. You know, we'll ditch him in a cistern and say an animal killed him. And in brief, one of the brothers, Reuben says not to kill him. Here's, here's a bubble of mercy. Just throw him in the cistern, throw him in the empty well instead. 
You know, he is our brother after all. So they take Joseph's robe and they throw him into the empty cistern. And then like any good older brothers would do, or at least like like my older brothers would do, they sit down and they eat lunch. Okay. So then Judah, one of the brothers, sees some Ishmaelite merchants coming uh, down the road and says, guys, let's not kill him. He is, after all, our brother. Let's just sell him instead. Let's see if we could get something out of this situation. So they pull him out of the cistern. They sell him for 20 shekels of silver. They cover his robe in blood. They take the robe to their father. Jacob then is in intense mourning because he thinks that Joseph has been killed by some animals or something like that. And in the meantime, Joseph gets carted off to Egypt and sold to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials. Now pause. If you're reading along with us, do not read chapter 38, okay? It's a different story. It's a weird story. Uh, it's probably not one we're going to use uh, on a Sunday morning service unless Jeremy's going to do it. And and I, I will let you know, uh, don't let your kids read it unless you have an itching today to answer some really, really delicate questions, okay? So go ahead and just uh, skip to 39. Joseph's story picks back up in chapter 39, verse 1. Now, Joseph had been taken to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. Here's an important line, verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his whole household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned from the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned the lord blessed the household of the egyptian because of joseph the blessing of the lord was on everything potiphar had both in the house and in the field so potiphar left everything he had in joseph's care with joseph in charge he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate now as joseph can you see a potential issue here the passage says that god was with him okay in what way does being thrown into a cistern and sold into slavery by your own brothers equal god being with you you know if god's with us doesn't that mean that you know good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people and furthermore it says that god blessed potiphar and his entire household because of joseph and as joseph wouldn't you want to ask in that situation, hey, God, you know, thanks for blessing the guy who bought me because of me. Uh, but for a little change of pace, how about blessing me because of me, you know? So I ask you, is God really with you when times are tough? Can you find that painful situation in your life when things are just bad? And to put the cherry on top, other people around you are just seemingly like winning at life. Maybe because of things you've done, they've been prospering, just like Joseph. Did you act like God was with you when you were thrown into that proverbial cistern? What would that even look like if you did? Now, here's the key. Times were tough for Joseph, undoubtedly. But verse 4 says that Potiphar noticed something about Joseph that made him put Joseph in charge and allowed him to give favor to Joseph. It was because Potiphar recognized God's presence with Joseph. Now, the Bible didn't say that Joseph used charm or deceit or cunning to try to manipulate his situation to better his circumstances to get in charge of Potiphar's house. He simply acted as if God was, in fact, with him. Now, what does that mean? In this particular story, I really don't know. 
The, the Bible doesn't say exactly how Potiphar sensed God's presence with Joseph, but would you allow me to use deductive reasoning just for a moment? I'm assuming it wasn't because Joseph wore some sort of Christian jewelry or T-shirt, um, seeing as Jesus hadn't yet arrived on the scene as a man, for starters. And I can assume that he didn't persuade Potiphar by using or misusing different biblical texts for his benefit because there was no Bible as we know it. And I can assume it wasn't because of his way with words, seeing as Joseph would have probably, you know, spoken Hebrew and Potiphar would have probably spoken some early Arabic Egyptian dialect. But I can also assume that Potiphar found Joseph to be kind, respectful, obedient, pleasant, trustworthy. It sounds an awful lot like the fruit of the spirit, you know, that we learn about in the New Testament. And if, if you know the Sunday school song, you know, feel free to sing along with me. Uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As long as you learn the English standard version, uh, that's, that's what it is. But when times are tough, are you acting like God is with you? Or do you, re- and do you resort to kindness in those situations? Or do you resort to manipulation to try to change your circumstances? Do you resort to faithfulness? Or do you resort to escapism and just try to get out of it? And when you hate your job or life circumstance, do you resort to self-control? Or do you gossip about it until communication comes full circle? And here's the thing. God isn't with you because you say it. So please know that. But saying it and accepting it allows you to see him there in whatever the situation is. And here's how we know that that is a real thing. I think we've all seen people go through horrible life circumstances, but yet they keep acting like God is with them. You know, they, they get hurt or someone dies, uh, someone loses a job, whatever. And then they do truly act like they walk through the valley of the shadow of death and they fear no evil. They aren't just good at putting on masks and bottling up their emotions. What you sense around them is real. And that is what I think Potiphar saw in Joseph. It's a pinch intangible, and I realize that, but I think we all know kind of what we're pointing at, what we're looking at here. And that builds to our second point. Is God really with me when I've been mistreated and forgotten? While you're thinking of a time that you've been mistreated and forgotten, let's look at Joseph's similar experience. Chapter 39, second half of verse 6. Now Joseph was well built and handsome, like dusty. Uh, that's not in every translation, but it's there somewhere. It's in the text. It's in the, it's in the original Hebrew. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he is entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because, you know, personal note, you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? A God who would seemingly have not done much for him lately. And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. 
When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make a sport of us. He came here to sleep with me, but I screamed. And when he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought to us came to make a sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Now that's an experience. What do you do there? So Joseph could have brought it upon himself to try to switch these circumstances. You know, he could have, for example, just slept with her until she got bored with him or ratted him out or they got caught. And that could have at least bought him some time in his present life situation. But either way, he would have ended up in huge trouble. But he could have, you know, tried at least to save himself some time. And in our shoes, if you knew that you were going to get in trouble for doing something, regardless of whether or not you actually did it, wouldn't you just do it? Wouldn't that be our inclination? I mean, you're going to do the time. You might as well do the crime, right? But what did Joseph do? Well, he did what anyone who was being pursued by his boss's spouse would do if he was 100% sure that God was with him. He exercised self-control. And he recognized that he wouldn't just be sinning against Potiphar, but against God as well. If she cries wolf to Potiphar, he's going to punish him as if he really raped her. So why add to the burden? Why also sin against God? Look at verse 20 and into 21. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. If this was you, and in some cases, maybe in a different situation, this has been you, how do you feel falsely accused? You know, nobody knows the truth about you except for you. You're in a jail of some sort, and the Lord is with you. Is that the first thing on your mind and lips? God is with you. How many of you have been through a time in your life that was just hell on earth, and someone says, God is always with you? And you feel the burn of salt being poured right into your wounds. I've been there too, but I have to ask, when you were living that hell on earth, when that did feel like salt in the wounds, were you accepting of God being with you? Or were you busy yelling at him because he wasn't talking? Because remember, being silent doesn't always mean being absent. And in Joseph's situation, it seemed like God was pretty silent, but we're assured that he was with Joseph. And look at this. End of uh, verse 20 into 21. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Okay, now we have a theme. First, Potiphar recognizes that God is with Joseph and he puts him in charge of his entire household. Now the warden sees God is with Joseph and puts him in charge of the prison. Now, do you think the warden pulled Joseph into leadership because he was always complaining about his innocence? Was it because he made elaborate escape techniques, maybe attempts? Or do you think it was because he showed love? Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Whoa, 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 whoa. You're more than welcome to sing along when that comes up again. And now as we move into chapter 40, some time has passed. 
And now joining Joseph in prison is Pharaoh's cupbearer and Pharaoh's chief baker. Simply put, cupbearer is the guy who tests the wine, makes sure it's not poisoned, etc., etc. I'm assuming the baker made delicious Boston creams for the Pharaoh. Okay, Joseph is basically in charge of these guys and notices one morning that they look particularly sad, even for guys in jail. And he asks them what's wrong. Again, sidebar, showing kindness to people he didn't really have to show kindness to. So they tell Joseph they've both had these dreams that they can't figure out. They've been keeping them up. So Joseph offers to help them with their dreams, seeing as he has them and can interpret them. So the cupbearer shares his first. And after sharing it, Joseph says, well, good news. According to my interpretation, you'll be out of here in three days and you will once again serve Pharaoh his wine. Then the baker shares his dream and Joseph says, well, you'll be out of here in three days too. Uh, But in another way, see, uh, Pharaoh is going to cut off your head and impale you and have the birds eat your flesh. Um, I could be wrong, right? (laughs) That's how I see this thing going down. Now, here's the thing. Joseph told the cupbearer to remember him when he was restored with Pharaoh. And both dreams came true the way that uh, that Joseph had said. But look at verse 23. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. I think you've been in that situation. I know I have. Joseph, for the first and only time that we see, is trying to cut a deal. He's showing us that he's not happy with his current circumstances. He says, essentially, I've helped you, so please promise to help me. And then he's forgotten. Let me know if any of these sound familiar, any of these crystallizing questions that we kind of throw out there when we feel like we've lost everything. God, please just let her say yes. I proposed to Mel very publicly. That was a prayer that I prayed because that could have been bad. Um, Dad, let me just help you. God, don't let me blow this interview. Honey, give me one more chance. God, don't let it spread to her liver. But then what? Is that all we need? Is that all we're really asking for? God, do this and I'll take care of the rest. I'm, I'm clear after that. I just need you to do this one thing for me. Is that how it works? Because it is super easy to put it out on the line when things are tough. You're thrown into a cistern, sold into slavery, falsely accused for rape, put into prison. You run the prison, but you're still not happy with your life circumstances. You throw it all out there. When you've been mistreated, when you've been forgotten, but are you asking God to be with you, to make his presence known to you, or are you asking him to grant you wishes, even wishes that you deserve? And don't get me wrong, asking God for specific things is not bad in the least. But what are we really asking from him and for him? Josh McDowell wrote a book um, in the late 80s, early 90s um, called uh, Don't Check Your Brains at the Door. And each one of the chapters was used to expose a different myth about God, Jesus, or the Bible. And one of the myths that he talked about was called the vending machine God myth. And it's this whole idea of how we kind of see God is a vending machine and our prayer as the quarter and we make our selection and hopefully we get what we wanted from that selection, right? Put in a little token, we bring it in, pop it out. And when we have just a regular vending machine, if we were to, you know, put in and select a Diet Coke and then get a regular Coke, we're going to be skeptical of that machine or not use it again, right? I think we've all grown skeptical of pop machines in general, but nonetheless, is that how we're treating God? 
You know, is it really about those wishes being granted or is it about his presence being made more known to us in our lives, even when times are bad, even when we're putting it all out there on the line? Because Joseph was in a situation where he could have said, you know, what's the use? You know, why bother? Things are already really, really bad. Let me give you hopefully a quick story. Um, My older brother, Kevin, passed away uh, in March of this year. He was 28 years old. He had been fighting leukemia since 2006 and fighting really, really hard. Um, He had a bone marrow transplant, and the graft-versus-host disease was just brutal on him. He had rashes and sores and blisters and horrible, horrible stomach aches, and, and he seemed to always be fighting infections. And at one point after his first transplant, he was in remission and seemed to be on the mend. So he started applying for jobs to support he and his wife. Now, Kevin had gotten sick at 21 years old and still completed college through his sickness. He double majored in auto mechanics and auto service management. And when your life is around cars and chemicals and heavy machinery, a fight with leukemia is going to limit what you can do. And in short, he was denied jobs because of his illness. He lost jobs because of his illness. Regardless of how well-trained he was, this stuff would happen to him. And yes, Kevin had his moments of doubt and tears and depression sprinkled in with his treatments and multiple complications. But he also drew closer to God than I had ever seen him do, devouring books and Bible studies. And even when I think that he knew he wasn't going to make it, Kevin was at a point where most would say, why bother? But he kept pursuing God. Even to one point, I didn't mention this last service, but even at one point within his last couple of months, he told me that he was actually thinking about going to seminary. He was drawing that close. Joseph was also at a point where anyone would say, why bother? And if you've not been in that situation, you probably know somebody who has. I've been in that situation. But even in those situations, if we know 100% without a doubt that God is with us, we have the opportunity to act accordingly. Bruxy Cavey, one of my favorite uh, teaching pastors, talks about this theory he has about people being warm to the idea of Jesus. He says if, if someone is going to come to Jesus, they have to be warm to the idea of him first, whatever that means in each person's situation. And for our purposes today, let me explain it like this, and it will build us into our next point. If you're sitting pretty, if life is going well, things couldn't be better. How much is God on your mind and lips compared to the times when you have nothing? and you're mistreated, and you're forgotten. Because I know that if I'm sick or dying or living under a bridge, I'm going to talk to God, to him and about him, a lot. Can I and can all the rest of us say the same for when life is honky-dory? We end up making ourselves cold to God, because not because we're mad at him, but because we feel subconsciously like we don't need him. And that leads us to our last point. Is God really with me? When I am prospering. In Matthew 19:24, Jesus says again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Ladies and gentlemen, if you pull anything from the Lord's Prayer, it's that God's kingdom is not limited to heaven. It's alive here on this earth, existing both inside and outside the kingdoms of the world. And according to what Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than it is for someone who is rich to get into that kingdom. And by most of the world's standards, we are rich. We may not feel like it, uh, but we're rich. 
You may have a hard time keeping up with the Joneses, but if you can access food and clean water and adequate shelter each day of the week, you're ahead of most. And some of us are really successful, and we know it. Some of us are on our way up. We can smell our, the success of our goals because we're so close to them. Some of you are already sitting at the top and saying, what now? You know, what do I climb to next? Well, check this out. Joseph is about to make any power and success you've experienced seem like winning a rec league racquetball championship. Okay. The C league, the bad one, the one that I would play in. Okay. Beginning in chapter 41, the cupbearer remembers Joseph finally because Pharaoh has these two dreams that nobody else in the kingdom can discern. So Joseph gets called up and cleaned up from the dungeon. When asked if he can discern the the dreams, Joseph says, get ready for this, I can't, dot, 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 but God can. Now, this is probably a bad move for Joseph, seeing as a baker just got impaled and Pharaoh doesn't share his God. And if anything, he thought he was a God. Regardless, Joseph is told the dreams and discerns them both with the same meaning. This is what Joseph tells Pharaoh. First, Egypt will have an incredible abundance agriculturally for seven years. Then they will have extreme famine for seven years. He tells Pharaoh that he needs to find someone who will take care of making sure reserves are kept during the abundant times so that they will have enough to make it through the famine. And because Pharaoh recognized that the theme for the day, God is with Joseph, he immediately puts him in charge. He is literally second in command of an incredibly powerful nation. And he woke up that day in a dungeon. A common thread in faith discussions is how we bring up said faith in the secular workplace. Now, I know each and every workplace situation is different. You're not always sat in front of some sort of dictator monarch combo, BC. Okay. But if we can learn anything from Joseph, my advice would be, to be tactful, but don't be afraid. You know, don't be afraid to say that God's presence is with you and that you're living a life with and for him. And you may say, well, I may get fired. And for all Joseph knew, he could have been killed, but he acted like any person on the cusp of great opportunity would if they were 100% confident that God was with them. Now, I encourage you to read the rest of this story all the way through because it is so, so great. Uh, But I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version of most of the ending so we can wrap up our last point and have time to respond. Later on in the story, during the time of plenty, uh, Joseph is in power. He has two sons. Things were going great for him. And then during the famine, his brothers show up to Egypt looking for help because they've heard that Egypt has food to spare. And again, read this at home because Joseph is really cool about how he reveals himself to his brothers uh, because they don't even know he's still alive, let alone that he's basically running Egypt and is wildly successful. So with that in mind, what would you do? You know, you've been wronged by someone. You've been hurt, mistreated, forgotten. That same person comes to you later for help. Now, by world standards, you can treat them however you want and nobody would care or be the wiser. Well, Joseph did what anyone would do when they know that someone who hurt them needs help and they also know that God is with them. He helps them. And not only that, he tells them to move their whole families closer to him so he can take care of them for the rest of their lives. If that person who tore you apart came to you for help, would you help them? Would you help your absent father if he comes to you in your adult life looking for help? Would you help your abusive mother if she comes to you years after repeatedly hurting you, needing money for rent? 
that friend who stole from you, that coworker who snuck into the promotion that was meant to be yours. And after all you've been through, the world would say that they didn't deserve your help. But if there's anything that we've learned about God, it's that he always gives people whom he loves things that they don't deserve. Like a relationship with him, the sacrifice of his perfect, beautiful son for them. You know, a lot of people hear the story of Joseph and think that the point is to find the good in every situation, that the mother goose rhyme in the story is to find the good in every situation, which isn't all bad. But if Joseph only did that, if he stopped there, we would have a ton of verses in Genesis that would be like, Joseph was locked into the dungeon, but he stayed positive. And by God, he said, well, at least I don't have to pay for groceries or rent anymore. But that's just surface stuff. Instead, Joseph accepted that God was with him always and acted accordingly. As the worship team comes up, let me give you the sermon in one single point. This is what I think Joseph's whiteboard lesson would be for us today. We must remember that God is with us even when times are bad. We must also remember that we are not God when times are good. Later on in this story, after he helps his brothers and everything, he says, what you did with the intention to harm me, God used for good. Joseph allowed himself to recognize God's presence. He then lived accordingly. And because of that, he was also able to recognize God's redemption of even the worst of circumstances. Don't you want that in your life? You know, accept that God may sometimes be silent, but never absent. And you know that nothing will be wasted. None of those hard situations will be wasted. God has the ability, is the great redeemer to make those things good and use them for his glory. And just like Joseph's story, possibly yours. Will you keep that in mind as we respond in song together? And please sit tight because I have one more quick, but hopefully important thought to share with you before we go. So please stand and join us in worship. Amen. Before I give you the closing real quick, let me just remind you that if you did come here today with a thought or a prayer or something on your heart, regardless of whether it's related um, to the message today or not, I would encourage you to find myself or one of the other staff members or prayer team members to pray with you after we're done here. But let me share this with you. Part of living like God is with us is living in relationship with others. You know, Joseph could not have shown God's presence to Potiphar or to the warden or to Pharaoh or to the people of Egypt or even his own brothers that had sold him into slavery if he didn't ever know them or interact with them. And yes, by that logic, that means a relationship can throw you into a cistern, but it also can mean it can make you the provider of a nation. And you've seen the banner above our door, and I'm sure you've seen the header on the website. You know that we're about friends and faith here. But I want to ask you if you personally are on the fence. You know, when my brother passed away in March, uh, we had his memorial here at Quest. And there was an outpouring of food and, de- and, and decorations and donations and, and people covering my job responsibilities and, and so much more. Because I said yes to relationship here. And I promise it isn't just because I work here. You have that same opportunity for relationship here. So even if you've done this already, before you go... Would you just grab a connect card or pull out your phone and go to the website and fill it out? Fill out a prayer request. Ask a question. Share your name for the first time. Share the presence of God with someone else and let them share it with you. And throughout this week and every other week, 
I want to give you a challenge. Whether you're on top of the world, things couldn't be better, or you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, show the world that you fear no evil because God is with you. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at gotoquest.org.